All right, for those coming in, there are sheets over on the side. Hey, we welcome all who are here at St. Paul's Lutheran Church in De Pere, Missouri. We welcome our listeners on KFUO 850 AM and worldwide KFUO.org. We're going to continue our study looking at the scripture lessons for the coming week. So we'll be looking at the three lessons that actually will be heard by most of us in church on September 24. So with that, let's begin with a word of prayer. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we thank you that as we were reminded in your word today, your forgiveness for us is not only generous, it is unlimited. And we thank you that that forgiveness is ours through your Son, Jesus Christ, and his life and death and resurrection on our behalf. We pray that you help each of us in our daily lives to do as you commanded through Paul, to be kind, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as you have forgiven each of us in Christ Jesus. We pray your blessing upon us this day as we look at your word that will be read and proclaimed next Sunday in our midst. May your Holy Spirit guide us in both our study and our discussion together. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. We're going to see that the main focal uh, point, the main focus for next week, is going to be grace. And uh, we'll see it over and over, especially in the Gospel lesson and in the Old Testament lesson, Isaiah chapter 55. Now, a little caveat for those... Uh, who are here at St. Paul's, and actually this went on, the, went on the radio now that I think of it as well. The gospel lesson that we're going to read is going to seem very familiar to you because it's the one that I used back on the first Sunday in August. We did a special four-part series, a sermon series here at St. Paul's on the four solas of the Reformation, and I was up first and preached on the subject of grace. And it's this gospel lesson that uh, we actually used, and I used, in the, in the sermon. So if this seems a little familiar, I hope actually it does seem a little familiar to you. If it doesn't, it's a little discouraging to me. But uh, at any rate, I just uh, wanted to state that right up front. Now, let's take a look at the uh, collect for the day. And remember, I've always said that if you come into church on Sunday and you want to see what kind, what, what's kind of the main focus... The collect is a good place to start. It's that prayer that comes right before the scripture readings, and as its name implies, it collects together the main thought or the main theme for that day. So you can look there and kind of get a clue, perhaps. So at the top of the sheet there, Lord God, Heavenly Father, since we cannot stand before you relying on anything we have done, notice that's an assumption. That's, a, that's an established fact right away. We can't stand before you on anything we have done. Help us trust in your abiding grace. And then secondly, and live according to your word. So we're really asking for two things there when we get to the petitions, that we trust in his. Notice it's not just a one-time grace. It's his abiding grace. It stays with us. And we live in a state of grace through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then secondly, that we live according to his word, so that our lives would be reflecting that word of grace to us and reflecting the kind of behavior that's pleasing in his sight. And then as we, in all our prayers, pray through 
our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right. Now, let's first of all uh, think to ourselves, what are we talking about when we talk about grace? If a little Sunday school kid were to come up and say, well, I keep hearing this word grace around this church, uh, what does that mean? What would we give a little definition of grace? What do you think? Yes, Virgil? Okay, you can, use, you can do an acrostic with it and say God's riches at Christ's expense. And that's, uh, many of you probably learned that as you were growing up in Sunday school. And that works. Uh, any others? Jan? Yeah, the unconditional love that God has for us in Christ Jesus alone. Okay? Is it uh, in any way deserved by us? No. It is, so it is God's undeserved, unmerited, we might say, favor toward us, and it comes to us through Jesus Christ. Okay? So when we're talking about grace, we're talking about nothing that we earn or merit or deserve or could have any hope to earn or merit or deserve. It is given us by God as a gift, un totally unmerited, simply because he loves us. That's it. It's that simple, okay? We try to mess it up by, uh, you know, trying to in some way think that we, we can earn or deserve just a little bit of this ourselves, and we'll talk about this in just a moment. Now, the gospel lesson is Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 through 16, and this is the parable of the workers in the vineyard. And we might define a parable as, and you, know, you, you probably heard this uh, sort of Sunday school definition of what a parable is, an earthly story with heavenly meaning. Very good. Boy, we've got a chorus here today. And uh, that's, that's a good definition. It's, it's a, a story that, in this case, Christ composes. It is not meant to be a, you know, he's not telling an historical fact or an event that actually occurred. It's a story that he composes, and he uses earthly details, like a vineyard, like workers, like an owner of a vineyard, and he is trying to teach his disciples and all of us something about the way life is in the kingdom of God versus the way it is in the world. And oftentimes, you will see the parables take earthly, the, the way it is in the world, and turn it upside down. And we're going to see that today, as a matter of fact, in this parable. So uh, it's a story that Jesus composes. He wants to teach his disciples and eventually us, of course, something about life in the kingdom of God. And usually there's one main point to a parable, one main teaching that he's trying to get across. Now, it's often helpful when you're looking at a parable that Jesus told, not to just look at the parable, but to look at what happened right before Jesus told the parable. Because oftentimes there's uh, circumstances uh, that give rise to the parable that Jesus tells. In other words, he doesn't just uh, spring into a parable without some good reason to teach something. And if we look, uh, those of you that have your, your Bible, let's take a look uh, before this, before the parable. And I want to look at Matthew 19, starting with verse 16, and we'll work our way up to the parable. In other words, what we're looking at here is what kind of set up Jesus telling this parable. Uh, what was, it's often helpful to look at what did the disciples say, 
uh, were there Pharisees around? You know, all kinds of these circumstances that kind of play into a parable. Now, Matthew 19, starting in verse 16, Jesus has this encounter with a rich young ruler. Now, let's first of all, just for a moment, what was the, the understanding back in Bible times, the common understanding that if you were wealthy, if you were rich, what was your standing thought to be with God? Very good. Yes, you were, you were in, you were in a good uh, relationship with God, and they would point to, look at all those blessings. That person, whoever it is, must really be in good with God. On the contrary, what, what was the assumption, what was the common understanding, if you were poor, a beggar, a leper, uh, someone who had some disease or some physical defect, what was the assumption there? Something's wrong. Something's wrong. Uh, in John chapter 9, uh, what question did the disciples ask when they come upon the man who was born blind? He could, he's been born never able to see in his life. Remember the question they asked? Lord, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he should be born blind. So see, the assumption there is, this has got to be the result of some kind of sin here, see? So that, this is what we go into this with, okay? So let's look at, starting at verse 16 in Matthew 19. And behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Now as Lutherans, right away, our, our antenna go up and we say what? Wrong question, right? But we're, we'll see how Jesus deals with this. And he, this would be Jesus, said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. Now, is that a true statement? If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Right? But there's a problem, isn't there? <laughs> but he's, 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 Jesus is gently leading this guy along, okay, to see he's going to lead him to the point of seeing that he's, he's, he can't do it. Um, and so the guy goes along. He said to him, which ones? In other words, out of all the commandments, uh, is there any, any special ones I should focus on, right? Which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Which table of the law did Jesus focus on there? The first table or the sec second table of the law? All the commandments dealing with your relationship with other people. Kind of interesting. Jesus starts there. But he's, Jesus, you're going to see Jesus is going to be working backward here uh, to get to the point. So the young guy says to him, all these I have kept. Well, we might say he thinks he has kept them, right? He obviously didn't see Luther's explanation to the commandments yet, but he thinks, he thinks he's kept them all, okay? Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. It's not only that he had great possessions, but what about those great possessions? What were they to him? The God, yeah. So really, Jesus starts with the second table of law, 
And the guy's all confident. He's kept all those. And then Jesus goes for the jugular right there and goes right to the first commandment and shows this guy that in his life, this is his God. And he turns away. He, he could not do what Jesus asked him to do. So he could not, as he thought, keep all the commandments. And uh, he, he goes away. You know, he'd love, to, he'd love to know, this is one of those where, uh, remember Paul Harvey used to do on the radio the rest of the story, right? He'd love to know what happened to this guy later on. You know, did he go away and think about that and come back? We, we don't know. We don't have an account of it. It'd be great to see. But here comes the, here comes the, the part that really bears into what we're going to look at today. Uh, at verse uh, 23, And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? So the disciples are shook by this statement, that it's with great difficulty that a rich person will enter the kingdom of God, and that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the, the kingdom of heaven. And why are they shook about this? Because they had that common understanding that a rich person was in good with God. And, well, if a rich person isn't going to be saved, like we thought, or only with great difficulty, you can tell the wheels are turning. And notice now what the question is going to come. Now, Peter, as he often does, is going <laughs> to blurt something out here. It's 27. Then Peter said, uh, uh, I'm sorry, uh, we go back. I skipped a little part, uh, 26. But Jesus looked at them and said, uh, I'm sorry, the disciples, I'm sorry, verse 25. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? So you get the idea here that Peter is thinking about whose salvation at this point? His own and his fellow disciples. And what is his question in his statement and question in verse 27 meant to imply to Jesus? If anybody deserves it, we do, right? In other words, if, if there's going to be trouble getting into the kingdom, Look at, Lord, you know, we have left everything and followed you. As if to say, again, if anybody gets in, we should, right? So this is the opposite of grace, isn't it? This is saying we deserve to get in. Because, look at we have left everything and followed you. In other words, if anybody's getting in, it ought to be us, right? We deserve it, okay? And notice there then following, Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, uh, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands, for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. 
So Jesus, in effect, says, don't worry about it. <laughs> yeah, anybody who's left everything and followed me, you're going to be receiving way more than, than you ever thought. So don't worry about it, Peter and the rest of the disciples. So again, this is the backdrop for this parable that Jesus tells. He has just heard a lot of self-righteousness on the part of the disciples, thinking that they earn it or deserve it when it comes to the kingdom of God. Jesus is going to tell this parable now to get across to them that that's not the way it is in the kingdom of God. It doesn't come that way. And so now let's take a look at the parable. Let's read the whole thing through, Matthew 20, and then we'll go back and kind of take it apart. Matthew 20, starting at verse 1, um, For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, You go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, Why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, Because no one has hired us. He said to them, You go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first last. All right. So it's a fairly simple parable to follow. If you, if you take the times of the day, the dawn to be about 6 a.m., and then the, he goes out, gets those workers at, at the break of dawn, at, say it's 6 a.m., goes out the third hour, which would be about 9 a.m., uh, sixth hour, about noon, ninth hour, about 3 in the afternoon, and the eleventh hour, about 5 in the afternoon, okay? So they're all working away there with one set only working one hour. And then comes time to pay at the end of the day, and they all receive a denarius, which is the day's pay. That's the, that's the standard pay in Bible times for a day's work. Now, let's just stop for a moment. Did the owner of the vineyard cheat the people that he hired at 6 a.m. in any way? They agreed to work for a denarius, right? It's not like he promised them one thing and then at the end of the day gave them something less. He gave them exactly what he agreed to give them. So the beef that the ones had who were hired first was not that they didn't get what they promised, but that they got what? The same amount as the ones who came in at the last hour. They were operating, were they operating under a principle of grace? No. They were operating under a principle of 
you earn, you work, and if they worked less than us, they deserve less than we got, right? And you see, that's the way the world works. And Jesus, in this parable, responding to what the disciples have just said to him, lets them know that in the kingdom of God, even those who come in at the 11th hour receive the whole day's pay. They don't get a twelfth of a denarius, they get the whole thing. And it's kind of interesting at the very end there where Jesus says, you know, am I not allowed to do with my own uh, money what I choose? In other words, you're begrudging the fact that, that I'm that generous to these people instead of being happy that they got? See? And, and so, you know, it's always the way of sin to turn us in on ourselves, isn't it? And to, and to make us think that we either earn more, we deserve more, and uh, we, we begrudge, at times, God's generosity toward others. Can you think of a very famous person who came into the kingdom at the very 11th hour? In fact, it was 11.59 and 59 seconds. The thief on the cross, right? At the very end of his life, says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And, and Jesus' response, today you will be with me in paradise. You know, it was nothing less than the whole day's pay for that thief on the cross. It would have been interesting to see how the disciples reacted to that, right? If they heard it, this guy, you know, he's, he's, he's a thief. He's here on the cross. He repents and he gets everything. It's, see, it's the, same, it's the same mentality. Now, how do, uh, now certainly, uh, we don't do that, right? We never do that. Couldn't be. Um, never at St. Paul's, but at other churches, it can be the case that ha what happens when someone new comes in, there are some people who let them know right off the bat that we've been here 35 years. Our grandparents were charter members of this congregation, right? So what's, what's the kind of silent message that's being conveyed there? Yeah, just kind of be quiet, just kind of stay, stay in your place, and, uh, you know, we're, we're the first-class people here, and you're back in coach, you know, so don't, don't, uh, don't call us, we won't call you, right? And you've got, you know, the idea that, you know, you don't get the whole thing yet. You know, you're, you're not here uh, quite as much. Um, now, that's perhaps a very simplistic example. But, you know, there are others <clears throat> that you can read about where really heinous uh, criminals who have done terrible, terrible things in their lives uh, in prison are converted to Christ. Christ, they confess Christ as their Savior. Um, one that came to mind, and I, I, I should have checked this out to make sure it was correct, but uh, you remember Jeffrey Dahmer and, and that? that? That is an example, I think. And, you know, you think about that and what he did, the atrocious things that he did with bodies buried in the yard and so on that they were digging up. And some people may have the reaction, I don't care what he says he believes, he should not be going to heaven, right? And we have to remember it is strictly grace alone, and there is no sin 
that is unforgivable except the sin against the Holy Spirit, the sin of unbelief. But, you know, we have to be careful that we don't begrudge God's grace toward other people the way it's being done here, okay? And Jesus wants to get across to these disciples that in the kingdom of God, it's all about grace. It's not about works. So if we take, about, take apart the parable, the owner of the parable is... I'm sorry, the, the owner of the vineyard is, is God. Or you could say Jesus or God, it doesn't matter. Uh, who are the workers? Yeah, all of us, really. Anybody who is called into the vineyard. And the vineyard would be the kingdom of God, or the, we could even say the, the church. Uh, we won't look at it, but Isaiah 5 is where the, the uh, vineyard is, call, is referred to as God's people. In fact, God says that he set up a vineyard, planted a hedge around it, put a watchtower in it, cultivated it, got it all ready for them. He comes and wants a harvest, and he only gets sour grapes or wild grapes that set your teeth on edge. And from that point on, it's very strong that whenever God speaks about a vineyard, you're picking up. He's talking about the kingdom of God or his own people, okay? So, and what is the pay at the end of the day? It's what? Forgiveness, salvation, however you want to put it. And everybody gets the whole amount, okay? And even some who come in last will be first in that regard, right? He calls them up first. And now, that's in contrast to the ways of the world, because the ways of the world would say, those people who came in earliest, they should get a denarius, but what should the people who came in at the 11th hour get? Maybe a twelfth of a denarius, right? They shouldn't get the same. That's just not fair. Can you imagine what would happen in a factory uh, situation today? If somebody came in, worked one hour, and got the same amount, and, and it got out that they got the same amount as some, oh, there'd be pickets that, you know, this is just not the way it's done. But that is the way it's done in the kingdom of God. And that's because it's not based upon the, our, our pay at the end of the day, so to speak, is not, is not based upon the time spent in the vineyard, the amount of work done in the vineyard, effort extended in the vineyard, any other human measurable thing it's not based upon that at all, okay? Now, back to us again. What is it in us that makes us want to think at times, even, I'm talking about now, after we're all Christians, wants to make us think at times, well, you know, maybe I'm just a little bit deserving of this, or I'm, I'm certainly more deserving than that person is. Sin inside of us, right? And what are some of the things that we might trot out to kind of say, to, as if to say to God, you know, I know it's grace, but, you know, I, I think I'm a little, I've, I've kind of done my part here. What are some things we might trot out? Come to church every Sunday, right? What else? In Bible class. Yeah, I'm in Bible class. What else? I volunteer all the time for stuff. What else? Lifetime member. Yeah. So we, you know, sing in choir, uh, serve on the altar guild, uh, you know, all, all these things. But let me ask you this. Aren't these, these are all God-pleasing things. I don't mean to, you know, come to church, Bible class. We're not talking against these things at all. 
but they are all what we call fruit of the faith, aren't they? They're what follows the faith. And they're the natural outgrowth of our faith. And it's so, you can tell how sin still works in us because we even want to take this fruit of the faith and turn it around and offer it up to God. And he produced it in us to start with and, and offer it up to him as if to say, you know, I'm, I'm a little better, I'm certainly better than these people I read about in the newspaper or see on the news, right? And again, it is all grace. It, it is nothing that we bring to it at all. And this is what Jesus wanted to get across to his disciples and uh, certainly to us as, as we read this today. There is also, I didn't want to uh, neglect talking about this, what is the, to me at least, the real message of encouragement and hope in this parable? That the guy who comes in at the 11th hour gets the whole thing. And we've had cases right here at St. Paul's, and there are plenty of other cases, where somebody very, very late in their life, like laying in a hospital bed for the last time, confesses faith in Jesus Christ. And what a comfort at a funeral to be able to say, in effect, they received the whole amount, you know? They didn't receive a twelfth of it, they received the whole amount. And so to me, that is, it's not the main emphasis of the parable, but it's such an encouraging part of the parable that, uh, you know, we all know people, I'm sure, that are living outside of faith in Jesus Christ, and we pray for them. We continue to, to witness to them with our life, and at times when opportunities arise with our words as well. And it's so encouraging to know that, uh, you know, there is, the, until the person draws their last breath, there is still hope that, that they will come and repent and, and believe in Jesus Christ, confess faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, it's so often that it seems death itself, uh, or the, the prospect of their own death, uh, I've seen in people, kind of takes away a lot of those defenses. You know, it's, it's really easy to keep God at arm's length when everything's going great in life, and boy, I'm doing just fine, and you know, I don't think I need God that much in my life, or I'll think about that someday. But boy, when you've, you're on that hospital bed and you know the end is near, it seems like a lot of that stuff goes away. And that's when you can have a very frank discussion about, about faith and the need for it and eternal life. So that, to me, is a real hopeful sign or a hopeful little part uh, of this parable. Uh, wasn't it uh, Yogi Berra said, it isn't over till it's over, right? And uh, that's, that's the way it is. Not that we're equating Yogi Berra with this, but, uh, you know, there, there's a real message of hope there in this, okay? All right, any comments or questions before we move on to uh, the Old Testament lesson? Don. Yes. Yeah, okay, the question was, uh, back before the parable, Jesus talks about the disciples uh, sitting on 12 thrones judging. Now, remember, judging in the sense of leading. Old Testament judges were leaders. They did decide cases, but they were primarily leaders. Judging the 12 tribes of Israel, and is that an indication that 
there might be differing degrees of glory in heaven? And the answer is yes. Uh, we do believe, uh, and there's 1 Corinthians 15, starting at verse 35, is another one Jesus ta or, uh, Paul talks about the difference in brightness between the sun and the moon and the stars. So in heaven, we believe, first of all, there will be equal bliss. We will all be completely and totally uh, more than satisfied, uh, blissful in heaven, uh, beholding God. But uh, Scripture in several places talks about, you know, what we might say are differing degrees of glory in heaven. And this is one spot where that comes out, that uh, God accomplished more through the disciples than he, might, than he did the thief on the cross, for example. And uh, we never usually make a big deal of this, but it's, and again, it's not that, you know, I'm going to look up and uh, see Peter up there and think, well, gee, why is Peter way up there and I'm way down here? You know, I'm in the, I'm in the, uh, I'm in the free grass seats over here and Peter's in the front row. We're all going to be completely, completely happy and blissful, okay? But so it's, it's equal bliss or complete bliss and differing degrees of glory, okay? And we can maybe do a separate study on that at some point, but uh, that's not obviously the main point here. But yes, that's, that's a good indication. Anything else? All right, now, the, usually the Old Testament lesson and the Gospel lesson are the ones that are connected, and it's the same case here today. So let's look at, we've only got a few verses here in Isaiah 55, and we'll read through, starting at verse 6, we're back on the sheets now, starting at verse 6 of Isaiah 55. Seek the Lord while he may be found, call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, that me, he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Now God's people are going to be in captivity in Babylon, and Isaiah here is speaking about a he starts off in chapter 55 inviting God's people to a banquet. And there is a sense in which they, that banquet is they're going back to Jerusalem and having things restored there, but there's also a sense that he's talking about the ultimate banquet of salvation here. Okay, And so we start off, uh, I think verse 6, I just wanted to say, have a look at this for a second. Seek the Lord while he may be found call upon him while he is near. You almost get the sense here that it's sort of don't delay, don't drag your feet, you know. Um, and I think here about people that do put God off, as I was uh, speaking about it before. They keep God at arm's length. And uh, you may know people of this, of this nature as well. And you know, I often think, and I've, I say this repeatedly when I was at the seminary and, and uh, we would talk about preaching there, that at a funeral or at a wedding, you have people there who may not be a member of any church at all. And they're there at the funeral or they're there at the wedding because they're either a relative or a friend 
of either the deceased in the funeral or the couple getting married and whatever. And I would always, always, always take that opportunity to preach the gospel of Christ because you don't know whether that will be the last opportunity some of those people will have to hear about the way to salvation. The Lord may never be as near to them again in their life as he is right at that point. And, boy, I would never, uh, you know, pass on that opportunity. Um, now, you wonder, the Lord knows, doesn't he, that for, for each person that's in that, it's in that category that this is my last offer to you. You know, we don't know that humanly, but he does. This is, my, this is the last time. Repent, believe. And, you know, you, it's, it's almost what Isaiah is saying here. You know, call upon the Lord while he is near, while he allows himself to be near you, okay? And so that's something, I guess, for each person to think about, that who knows when that last opportunity is in life, okay? Um, and then going on, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. They're really thinking there also, not only just in general, but, you know, did everybody, did all of God's people, lock, stock, and barrel, come back from Babylon, back to uh, Jerusalem and rebuild? No. There were some that say, hey, this is pretty nice here in Babylon. I think I'll stay here. And, you know, these words are addressed to them as well, you know, to uh, forsake your way and return to the Lord that he may have compassion. So he's even talking about unbelievers there in Babylon who have grown too accustomed to Babylon. But actually, verses 8 and 9 are the ones that really tie in with our text. How would, you, how, how, do, how would you think the gospel lesson ties in here? Your thoughts are not my thoughts, and neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. The heavens are higher than the earth. My ways are higher than your ways. God's ways are the ways of grace, forgiveness, compassion. Not the ways of the world, not, the, not our ways, which are the ways of work earn it, deserve it, I'm better than you are, and so on, see? So that's the tie-in between the Old Testament lesson and the gospel lesson. It's very true that God's ways are not our ways. They are higher than our ways. He operates with grace, undeserved, unmerited love for sinners. We don't, okay? And so what Isaiah is doing here, what God is doing through Isaiah, is tenderly inviting his own people to return to him, to repent. He will forgive. Um, your thoughts are not my thoughts. They certainly are not. And notice there, he will abundantly pardon in verse 7. Okay? So it's a great tie-in with the gospel lesson, because in the gospel lesson, Jesus has made it clear that in the kingdom of God, it's not the way it is in the kingdom of the world. It's totally different. It operates by grace and grace alone. Okay? So that's kind of a, a quick breeze through the Old Testament lesson. It's only uh, just a few verses there from Isaiah 55. But I think chosen because of that tie-in. The ways in the kingdom are different than the ways of the world. All right, let me stop for a minute. Any questions, comments on the Old Testament lesson? None? All right. 
Now, let's get on to the last one we'll look at is the epistle. And uh, this doesn't necessarily tie in with grace, so to speak. But uh, Philippians is one of what we call Paul's prison letters. And we think he actually wrote this when he was in, uh, uh, under house arrest in Rome. And uh, by house arrest, meaning he, we think he actually uh, rented a house. He, had to, he was restricted. He, was, he had a guard. But he could have visitors. They could come in and visit with him. And uh, this was uh, probably during that sort of house arrest time that, that he writes this, okay? Let's read it through real quickly, and then we'll go back and get as much in as we can. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. All right, so he is imprisoned here. And notice, um, starting at verse 12, he says that what has happened to me has really done what? For the gospel. It's advanced the gospel. So you would normally, you would think, wouldn't you, that if Paul is in prison, what's going to happen to uh, the whole ministry of the gospel out there in these churches that he has begun all over Asia Minor? It's going to go down the tubes, right? Because Paul's not there. He's in a jail cell somewhere. No. Oh, he's actually in a house here. But no, Paul says, what has happened to me is actually going to advance the gospel. And notice there, who has been brought aware of the gospel? The whole imperial guard has been, brought, has been made aware of the gospel. So we just got to take a look at the big picture here. 
They throw Paul in prison. And they're, they're, they're thinking, okay, we put him in prison. He's going to just keep him there in that house, keep him under arrest. You know, that'll, that'll take care of him. But so what's Paul doing? He's converting the guards. <laughs> He's preaching the gospel so that the, not only just a few, the whole Imperial Guard. Now, the Imperial Guard was a special uh, group of soldiers. I don't know what to compare them to today. But they, they had special assignments from the emperor or from senators also, from Roman senators. And uh, here, Paul, you know, Paul is this guy, no matter where you put him, what's he doing? He's talking about Christ. He's in jail in Philippi, and they're singing hymns, you know, to God. And so that the guards, after the earthquake in Philippi, the, the door is open, and Paul's still there in prison, and the guards are so shook as Paul could have got, gotten away. And they right away say, you know, the jailer at Philippi, what must I do to be saved, you know? So it, it must have been so frustrating for the people who were trying to put a lid on Paul and keep him from proclaiming this gospel that everywhere he goes, even when they've got him under custody, he's, he's converting all the people around him. So Paul says, you know, again, his imp and isn't this, isn't this an, another great thing? You and I might look at being in prison as the worst thing that could happen. Now I'm not going to be able to preach the gospel anymore. Oh, woe is me. I guess this is all lost now. Not Paul. This is an opportunity to advance the gospel. You know, it's just that, that enthusiasm for the gospel, that he cannot help but preach Christ, is to me is just uh, a marvelous thing to see, an incredibly encouraging thing to see. So the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Now there's a two senses that his imprisonment is for Christ, isn't it? Christ, his preaching of Christ is the reason he's in prison. But he's also saying, I think, there that his, his imprisonment is for Christ in the sense that he's going to continue preaching Christ and the, the gospel is going to continue to advance even though he is in prison. Okay? Um, then in uh, verse uh, 18, uh, or I'm sorry, verse 14, verse 14, the second one there, what impact did Paul's being in prison have on the others who were back, not in prison at all, but the others, we think these would be the public proclaimers of the gospel, what impact did that have on them, is Paul saying here? Emboldened them. And again, wouldn't you think it would be just the opposite? that they threw Paul in prison and these other guys would say, oh, we better, we better keep quiet here because we might be next. No, that's just not the way the early church operated. They were emboldened because they see Paul in Rome converting the imperial guard and they are even more bold now with their proclamation of the gospel, okay? And so, uh, again, it's almost like uh, in today's, the Old Testament lesson we heard today, where Joseph confronts his brothers and says to them in Genesis 50, you meant it for evil or for bad, but God meant it for good, right? And same thing with Paul's imprisonment, you know. His enemies meant it for evil, but you can see God is working through it for the good, which brings to mind a Bible passage. God works for good in all things, right, to those who love him and are called according to his purpose, okay? Romans 8.28. Now, uh, verse uh, 19, uh, I know that through your prayers... Now, who is the Spirit of Jesus Christ? Holy Spirit. That's just another way of, of, of 
referring to the Holy Spirit. It's not a very common one, but this will turn out for my deliverance. So he, he clearly seems to think he is either going to be let out of prison here, which is the normal way this is taken, or ultimate deliverance, but probably uh, deliverance from prison. Um, you know, it's my eager expectation that I will not be at all uh, ashamed, but with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Now, verse 21 is a tremendous uh, verse for a funeral, isn't it? For a funeral sermon. Uh, for me uh, to, uh, I'm sorry, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Uh, that is just one of the most special verses. For me to live is Christ. In other words, my entire life is centered and focused on my Savior, Jesus Christ. So Paul is saying, for me to live is Christ. Those two things are synonymous. And to die is gain. And again, that's the contrary to the way the world looks at death, but it's not the way we as Christians look at death, is it? Uh, let's just review again. We believe that when we die... Our soul or our spirit goes to be with the Lord. Our bodies remain here, so our spirit, our soul, is in the very presence of God. Uh, Jesus, when he died, uh, Luke says he gave up his spirit. Before he died, he prays, Lord, into your hands I commend my spirit, right? So spirit goes to be with the Lord. Then on the last day, body, uh, body is resurrected, and now without any of the effects of sin, no cancers or arthritis or any of those things, and body and soul are brought back together, so we are made a whole person once again, and body and soul go to be with the Lord. First Thessalonians 4 is a great uh, section there that, that details all of this. So to die is actually gain, right? And uh, we as, you know, those here on this earth that will experience that unless Christ comes before we are called to be with God in heaven. But, you know, there is that two sides of death, isn't there? We mourn, certainly, the passing of anyone who is a friend or relative, close acquaintance. Death still is the last enemy. Death still rips that person away from us, and there's no denying that. But we don't grieve as those who have no hope, right? And that's exactly what Paul is getting at here. For the Christian, we can truly say to die is gain for all of us, dying in Christ. And, you know, you, I often wondered if you were at Philippi. See, these, were, these letters were read. <clears throat> they were read. They were, you, didn't, uh, you didn't read them on paper. They were normally read aloud. So you're at Philippi, and you hear Paul saying, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain, I, in effect, says I'd much prefer to die and be with the Lord, but I'll have to remain here in the flesh for you guys. So what, what do you think they might be thinking? <laughs> Thanks a lot, Paul. <laughs> sorry, sorry to be such a drag on your, on your life. Uh, and, and he didn't mean, I'm sure didn't mean it that way, but you wonder if it came across that way, right? Uh, and, and yet he, he knows that personally it would be preferable for him, uh, you know, from his own physical standpoint to die and to be with Christ. But you notice the, the sense of responsibility and the sense of, of duty that he has here. Um, you know, my desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. So he is saying, you know, 
while I could depart, I know that wouldn't be good for you, and I'm going to stay here and finish my work amongst you, okay? Um, and then uh, we skip down to verse 25, convinced of this, I know I will remain and continue with you all. We uh, think here where Paul says, I know I will continue and be with you all. He may have been referring to, there's a vision that he had, we won't look at it now, but it's in Acts 23, verse 11. And it seems as though there is a, uh, he has been assured by the Lord in a, a vision. We don't have the actual words of the vision, but he seems to have been uh, convinced by a vision that this will not be his end now at this point, that he will live on and possibly come to them again. Okay? And uh, verse 26, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ because of my coming to you again. So he wants to come back to them, wants to have this, this time together with them. Okay? And then finally, um, verses 27 through 30, just a beautiful description of a congregation that is united in one faith. Uh, I, you know, reading through this, you think, of, boy, this is like the ideal congregation. Paul says there in the, in the second line there, that I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving stri side by side for the faith of the gospel. Isn't that a beautiful description? That, that you are standing firm, and that's, that's uh, what our theme this year is, here I stand uh, as a congregation, standing firm, you know, in one spirit, with one mind. So there's an agreement of, of thinking here. Uh, they're, they're of one mind and uh, striving side by side or working side by side, pulling together side by side. And um, not frightened in anything by your opponents, even though, again, Paul is there under, under custody. They're not frightened at all. And um, then finally, um, you know, uh, verse 29, it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him but also suffer for his sake. It's been granted to you that, you know, you're not only going to believe but you are going to suffer as a result of that faith. And they are not shrinking back from that suffering one little bit. And Paul's imprisonment is encouraging to them, okay? So, some beautiful verses here. Again, uh, as is the case in most Sundays, the Gospel lesson and the Old Testament lesson match up in theme, that being the grace of God. And the Epistle lesson is kind of a standalone, but uh, has some beautiful thoughts in it about life and death for the Christian. Okay? All right, let's close then. We're out of time at this point. Let's close. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be and abide with you all. Amen.